Welcome and thanks for listening to the Spirit of Time podcast. It's a spirited discussion of watch topics and some of the cool bon vivant stuff that overlaps our hobby, especially fine spirits, craft beer, cocktails, and wine. In other words, if it's boozy, smoky, sudsy, or smooth, we'll probably talk about it. Think of it as a watch-focused happy hour for your commute. We are your hosts. I am Matt. I'm Greg. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. And welcome to the Spirit of Time podcast. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm really good, actually. Uh, it's it's a nice day, maybe a little too hot, but uh, we're at the end of the day, so who cares? It's it's time for a drink and uh, chat with my buddy. Yeah, you know, this is uh, required on any podcast to talk about the weather. We had some cooler fall preview weather, and, and then, of course, we got our, our, uh, our quickly uh, late summer, late fall summer weather going on here in Southern California again, so it's it's heated up. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of traditional, like mid October Indian summer. The one thing that's nice is it's it's I don't like losing the daylight, you know, when we go back to standard time. But this kind of shoulder season that we're in right now, where it's it's not staying light out until like nine p you know nine p.m. It's it's dark at a reasonable time, and it is getting cool at night. So that at least is a saving grace, and maybe I can finally wear my new uh, my new you know standard age. I got that. Targa Florio jacket. It, it's rad, but it is just, it's too hot to wear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got a chance to hang out with uh, Patrick from Bromar a little while ago. And I think he had your barber jacket out. So I know you're, you're sort of a, a, a fall attire, you know, aficionado. Oh yeah. I mean, we, you know, both days of fall, I try to dress accordingly here in Southern California. So I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we had, I mean, if anything, right, it, it was blustery and cloudy and, and rainy just a few days ago and probably an honest 15 to 20 degrees cooler. But yeah, now we're back in, it feels like June. Yeah, yeah, we got rained out uh, on soccer last weekend. And uh, it's actually two rainouts so far this season, which is sort of surprising. Not really, that's kind of unexpected. Yeah, well, it is what it is. But hey, enough about that, man. What is on the wrist for you today? Well, today, um, it was like, well, considering it was hot, I was like, oh, let's put something on a bracelet and just, you know, want to sweat through anything. So I have, uh, you know, my 16710 GMT Master 2 on. Um, felt like it had been a little while. In fact, the date's quite wrong. So it's been at least a, a little while since it's been on the wrist. So it feels nice to give it a little bit of wrist time. And, uh, and you know, it used to be the, the sort of daily, you know, before we went down this crazy rabbit hole. So and sometimes I like to put it back on and make it the daily again. Oh, absolutely. I think it could be too, especially you've got the, you know, the old LN version, right? So it's, you know, it's with the black, I think it, it attracts a little bit less attention. You can wear it, you know, more, maybe a little more frequently than you could wear a Pepsi. hundred percent, hundred percent. And, uh, you know, I'm moving a little slow today. You know, we were down at, uh, the, uh, Phillies, uh, Padres, uh, NLCS. And so, uh, great time at Petco and, um, you know, had some great beers down there as well, including uh, Harlan's Hazy IPA. Harlan's is out of San Diego, and a good friend actually, Joe um, Contento Agave. For those of you who are interested in sort of his spirits and agave adventures, he turned us on to Harlan's, and uh, so we had the Hazy IPA down there. Got that going. It was, it was just a great pour, 
and uh, they make some really interesting stuff, especially on the sours. You like your sours. Um, they're carrying them at Mission now. Um, I'm not sure how available they are outside the Southern California market, but really, really good stuff. I've I've had a number of their offerings before, including that hazy. It's very good. Um, I can get them sometimes at uh, Howie's in San Marino. And also, um, I think they're carried sometimes at our buddies at Vendome and Arcadia. But I've had a number of them and they're good. I think they do a um, like a, a Japanese lager as well. Yeah, that's right. And then a couple yeah. of their sours seem to be sort of Japanese inspired, whether it's the you know the yeast or the style. Um, there's some lychee stuff. So the flavors and and sort of brew styles, I think, has draw some inspiration from from that side of things too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, if you're in Southern California, that that brand is definitely worth a look. They've got a pretty, I think, a broad kind of variety of offerings, and I like it. So it's you said you're moving slow. Did you get a little banged up yesterday, or what? Oof. No, not not necessarily, but just you know the up and down, you know. Uh, and then, of course, having a good time while we were there, they lost. But, uh, you know, all, all told, it was a lot of fun. Good friend of mine flew in from Salt Lake. And so, um, yeah, it was really fun. Well, that's cool, dude. So uh, do you have anything in the glass today? Just that hazy is just kind of continuing the trend. It kind of gave me some inspiration to move forward with that one. So, um, yeah, that's what we got. Oh, right on. Well, that works, dude. I, now I kind of want to go get one of those. I, I want to say I can see the can and it's it's like this very um, kind of mid-century advertising e looking, you know, print on that. Yeah, it's pretty like, that um, they have. It's very low key. It's very low key. Yeah, they, they're not doing kind of like the can art that you would see on a lot of craft brews and sort of, you know, that kind of stuff. So everything's pretty, pretty dialed down from that respect. I, in some ways, you might even just sort of gloss over it if you aren't familiar with it. No, I could see that. Well, for me, I'm going to start with what's in the glass. It Again, it was a hot one. So I did uh, gin and tonic and a lot of ice. And um, I I thought I had some uh, some citrus here to do like, you know, a little garnish in the glass, but I don't. So I, I kind of improvised and just hit it once or twice with a shot of the orange bitters. Not uh, not traditional, but it's quite good. And this is this is the gin that I'm using. This is the uh, the Fitzgerald the the producer is Dunord. I want to say this is out of um yeah it is Minneapolis. So I don't know. Whenever I when I picked this up, I think I thought subconsciously of our buddy Jason Heaton. You know, he's got that uh that northern soul and uh I aspire to having my no- northern soul back. So I I bought one of these. It's it's hard to think of being in the north when it's like 85 degrees in October. Yeah, no kidding. We were just talking about that. Uh, I think you had brought that up. You were, were mentioning when we sat down with Aaron and, and Jamal from uh, Balsol uh, not long ago. And so I'm excited to see you uh, pouring that one again because uh, it sounded pretty tasty. Yeah, it's very good. And then on the wrist, literally, it's not old faithful. It's the oldest faithful on the the sage, green, and uh, and gold kind of hardware NATO. It's the old Tag Heuer 4000. So this is kind of, I would say it's vintage at this point. It's about 25 years old. Um, you know, vintage Tag Heuer, it's uh, kind of that media blasted stainless steel with gold accents. And it's got that sort of uh, uh, slightly slightly pebbly finish, like pewter color dial. Just super cool watch. And it continues to age very, very gracefully compared to other examples that I've seen. Uh, this one is still you know, nicely preserved. And, uh, it's gotten a lot more wrist time now that I've put it on this, this green and gold 
strap. It, it's it's awesome. So probably yeah, not the best you, choice today, given how hot it got. But yeah, but you've you've I think you've been praising the the kind of green you know neo for a little while now. Not that that's like a new thing, but I think you've been pretty pretty ahead on that, and um, especially with the matching hardware, I think that just really brings that thing up to speed. Not that it yeah, needed totally. it, but it gives it sort of a new kind of a new look in, in sort of an old package, which is right up our alley. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, yeah, the Sage NATO is kind of my my thing now. It's my gray NATO, I guess. Anyhow, well, hey, man, we are actually, I think, you know, um, I don't know if it's burying the lead or whatever, spoiler alert, however you want to put it, but we are sort of recording this on an off cycle because the bulk of our episode today was recorded separately. We're kind of doing, you know, a quick uh, bookends here, intro, outro for an episode that's going to feature a guest that is, I think, very unusual for us, but somebody we've wanted to have on for a long time. Somebody who is not really, uh, somebody who I would say is actually well known in the watch space. You know, if you're if you're in in to the enthusiasm part of watches, meaning you know, kind of the history and use of tool watches, especially pilots' watches. This person is not a, a watch industry guy or even a watch guy per se at all. We are joined on this one by uh, no less a personage than Vincent Jello Aiello, host of the Fighter Pilot Podcast, which, as you know, is extremely popular in certain corners of the watch collecting community. And it's it's just a great opportunity to sit down with somebody who is, you know, my slash our podcast guru. Um, literally, you know, Vincent kind of helped us with a lot of the the technical know-how to get our podcast up and running. He had a lot of pointers for us and was kind enough to kind of close the circle and actually appear with us on our podcast now that we've been running for like, what, a year and a half coming up on two years. So it's a fantastic opportunity. Again, um, I know a lot of people in our space, people that we know. I know Cole Pennington was stoked to hear that we, you know, we managed to get Vincent on. I want to say, uh, I've seen a screenshot of Adrian Barker's computer where he had the podcast queued up. People know who this guy is. It's a, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a very different kind of conversation because again, it's just more about him and his podcast and, and things that he likes. He's almost humble to a fault. You know, it, people who are aware of this guy know that he is, he's a former Naval aviator. So people who've, if you're not familiar, Jello, that's his, uh, his call sign. Jello was, you know, 20 plus years, full career, retired as a commander in the United States Navy. He was an aviator for his entire career. Um, he was a Top Gun graduate and then later on a Top Gun bro. That's the kind of the, the slang for somebody who comes back and serves as cadre at Top Gun. Uh, Vincent flew the F-18. I think I want to say he flew the Charlie, the Echo, the Foxtrot. I'm pretty sure he has two-seat experience. And then as a Top Gun guy, he also flew the F-16N. A lot of people don't realize, but the the Navy operates or operated, I don't know if they still do, a small number of absolute hot rod uh, F-16s that they would use for um, basically dissimilar training up at that schoolhouse in Fallon. And, you know, Vincent operates the Fighter Pilot podcast and that, that podcast has sort of spun off so that there's other a number of other aviation related podcasts under that umbrella and then also different sort of uh, uh 
what's the word, like different rabbit holes that you could go down that have spun off from from that. So there's a, an entire year's worth of F14 content under a different title. You know, that's the the mighty Tomcat, the big fighter. He had a couple of uh, F14 guys come in and basically do, I want to say like one or two episodes a month for an entire year under a different title. Um, they did that and he's doing other series as well. So right now I, I know in the past he's done something called the merge, which was a, a mini series, almost like a, a documentary audio feel. And it's just a, a fantastic guy, a fantastic stream of content. And it's something that I think a lot of people who are into watch collecting and tool watch enthusiasm will like if they don't already know who he is. Again, the the talk with Jello was not super focused on watches. We talked a little bit about, you know, what's his favorite beer. We talk about fly fishing, how he got his start in the Navy, his podcast, and a little bit about a couple of great watches that he does have. He doesn't realize it. I think he's a he's a watch guy in the making and just and just doesn't know it yet. We have to work on kind of quietly incepting him. So without further ado, why don't we go ahead and pause here? And we'll insert our conversation with Jello right now. So everybody stand by. Jello, good morning. How are you? I'm well, Matthew. Thank you for inviting me on. It is uh, it is good to see you. This is kind of our our monthly debrief, and we've repurposed the debrief <laughs> for a uh, an interview. I've been threatening with you for this with this for a while. So I I appreciate you being cool and. And taking uh, the time. It's my pleasure. And it's kind of you to support my show. So it's the uh, least I could do. Well, absolutely. Hey, Jello. So I think a lot of people who listen to this are going to either be furiously, you know, hitting the Google machine to find out who you are, or <laughs> more likely a lot of people, if they listen to our podcast, probably already know who you are. But can you give us like the three minutes, sort of the elevator pitch version of your story and, you know, where you're from, how you got into naval aviation? Sure. Well, I would say I'm a somewhat normal person. I just had very amazing experiences. I grew up in Southern California and my stepdad uh, came into the family and took us to an air show when I was eight years old. And I was just absolutely amazed by everything I saw and the experiences. And so later in high school, he asked me what I planned to do with my life. And I said, well, I don't know, you know, most high school kids probably have that answer. And so he said, well, you've always liked military aviation. How about trying that? And so I did tried to get to the Naval Academy. They said, thanks, but no thanks. So I found my way through an ROTC scholarship at UCLA and was accepted into flight school and made it through flight schools with sufficiently good grades to select jets and flew jets in the Navy for a 25-year career, all but one tour. I was always flying, went to Top Gun and was able to instruct there and flew mainly the FA-18 Hornet and Super Hornet, flew the F-16 Fighting Falcon a little bit at the end. And I retired in 2017, like I said, after 25 years and over, what was it, about 3,800 flight hours, five deployments, 700 carrier landings, and just, again, a wealth of amazing experiences that I didn't want to just sit on. I'd been a guest on another podcast that had a favorable experience, became friends with a guy. And so one of us had the idea, well, wait a minute, there's no one doing a military aviation podcast. Maybe I could do one. And so that was in 2010-ish. I had to wait till I got out of the Navy. And then I was hired by a major airline so that I had to wait for all that training. But in 2018, I launched the Fighter Pilot Podcast as a way to explore and celebrate military aviation with those who either maybe 
are interested but didn't get a chance to do it, or those who are interested and hope to do it. And either way, we've had a lot of fun. We're just wrapping up our fifth year, over 150 episodes, and it's been an amazing experience for me. Well, I can attest to the fact that it's a fantastic kind of string of content. And as somebody who's just observed from the sidelines, it does seem like just piecing together, you know, the calls and emails that you read out that there's quite a few perspective, you know, wannabe people who through listening and exposure um, go from being wannabes to gunnabes. <laughs> and that's, that's a pretty uh, fantastic contribution. So good on you. Yeah, thanks. Now, just to put a fine point on that, every year I go to the annual Tailhook reunion and convention in Reno, Nevada. And this past year, 2022, I was up there and met very, I guess, what, about half a dozen or so young pilots who were at various points in their training. And they all came up to me and said, oh, you're Jello. I listened to your show. And in one case, the fellow uh, was finishing jets and didn't know if he wanted to fly the Super Hornet or the F-35. And so he listened to those episodes again and said he picked F-35. And sure enough, he was standing there talking to me in the flight suit with a F-35 squadron patches. So uh, yeah, it's really uh, an amazing responsibility, I would say, to be able to influence a little bit the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, we are a, a watch and booze podcast here on Spirit of Time. So I, I we're going to kind of come back to your podcast here in a minute. But let's just kind of start with this. And, and for the listener, um, Vincent is, I, I flatter myself to say we're on friendly terms, but uh, is not a huge watch guy, right? Is that fair to say? As long as your audience doesn't come after me with pitchforks. But yeah, I guess of all the things that appeal to me in life, that's just not something I've ever been completely head over heels about. But I do appreciate a, a fine timepiece. Yeah, well, just as a slight aside, again, for people listening, um, go take a look at the website for the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Uh, there is a section there called Musings, and it's basically you know the occasional drop of thoughts, but Vincent has a, a great story about one of the, the cool watches that he does have, which is mm -hmm. a, a really, you've got this outstanding, I don't know if you realize how cool it is, but the, the prior generation Seamaster, uh, what is commonly referred to as the Peter Blake version of the Seamaster, but the electric blue, really cool watch with a, a very interesting story behind it. And then I, I don't know if you know this, but the watch that you wore in uh, the, what was it? Was it Carrier? Super Carrier? What was the, the documentary title? Yeah, PBS uh, Carrier. Yeah. So again, for people who are unfamiliar, um, you can YouTube uh, something called Pitching Deck, you know, Carrier Pitching Deck. And, and Vincent is in this episode and, you know, kind of describing what it's like to, you know, trap on a on a pitching deck is the, the aspect of the, the angle is changing quite a bit. And on his wrist while he's doing this is the, you know, the prominent uh, citizen Aqualand. That watch has been reintroduced and it is super hot right now and you cannot get it in the United States. So you're, oh, you're wow. sitting on, on an awesome commodity. If you ever want to sell yours, put, hook me up. Well, I, I don't have the original that I was originally given uh, and I don't remember when that was even. It's been probably at least 25 years, but I sent it in at one point to get repaired and they said, well, we can't repair this anymore, but we'll put this amount of money towards the next replacement and maybe not thinking like I had a classic car or something, you know, and just, okay, sure. Whatever the next model car is, I, I went ahead and did that. And so, yeah, the one I have now is not the original. Right on. Well, that brings up something else though, that, you know, the, uh, the, the car thing. So watches, aviation, they overlap quite a bit, but I've noticed that in the car hobby, a lot of people are in the car hobby and the watch hobby, a lot of people are into cars and that does 
speak to your passion. You are, you're a muscle car guy, right? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm a nut about those, but I do have my grandfather's 67 Ford Mustang Fastback in my garage. It's not original anymore, unfortunately, but it's still a lot of fun and brings back good memories. And I, I can understand your assertion there. I think people who appreciate fine machinery uh, appreciate it, whether it's on their wrists or on wheels. Yeah, absolutely. Well, have you done any any kind of restoration with it or is it something that you just kind of keep as pickled as possible and, and take it out and enjoy it? Well, my grandfather bought it brand new. And when we, uh, I have two brothers, uh, when, when we got it from him in the 80s, it had the original fan belts on it. Um, my oldest brother decided we wanted to hot rod it or something. So in the in the case of cars as it is, it's always easier to take them apart than it is to put them back together. So it got taken apart and languished for many years. And when that happened, unfortunately, some parts found their way elsewhere. So I finally got it from him in 2013 and had it put back together. And we had to replace uh, the drivetrain and a hood and the wheels. And so it's not original anymore. But it's still a 67 Fastback, which is a very desirable and fun and good looking car. Yeah, I think that's actually probably the best looking of the the vintage Mustangs. It's a that's a good one. Yeah, uh, for sure. Are you into bikes as well? Uh, motorcycles. Yes, I have a my other brother used to work for Yamaha. And so I've been through many motorcycles in my, over the years, but in 2006, they released a 50th anniversary limited edition, one of 500 of the R1. So the 1000 CC bikes, and he was able to help me get number 207. And at that point I quit upgrading. So that bike is already, gosh, 2006 to 22. What is that? 16 years. And so it's uh, out in my garage also right next to the Mustang. And I don't get on it as much as I used to. We used to ride the tracks and I would take it up into the mountains when I used to live in central California. And now it's more of a traffic beater here in South California, where I can, uh, Southern California, where I can, if I need to be somewhere without too many bags, I can get through traffic a little more easily. So uh, an unglamorous and unglorious finish to its life, but uh, it's, it's still a fun bike and I still do enjoy it. Well, at the end of the day, yeah, I'm sure it's still fast. And that's oh gosh, yeah. I've seen 175 on it, uh, and maybe I shouldn't admit this, but it was on a two lane, very straight road in uh, East Northern California. And I thought, let's see what this thing can do. And then I realized, you know, one squirrel, and I'm probably going to be pink mist. So I had to back off at 175. God, that's unbelievable. I, I can't even imagine like that, uh, the physical sensation of going that fast, like ex, you know, exposed to the road well, and the yeah, noise was, and all that. I was tucked in pretty good, but yeah, it, it was it was pretty sensational. You know, for me as a fighter pilot, that speed itself wasn't necessarily new, but normally I'm cocooned in a cockpit and about to either take off or land. So yeah, being exposed was a, a little unique and self-preservation took over. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, yeah, live to fight another day, discretion, mm -hmm. better part of valor and all that stuff. Well, hey, and I've got another kind of... Uh, a line of questions for you that have always been of interest to me. I have, so, and again, full disclosure to everybody listening, I haven't flown in decades. I haven't had any kind of pilot in command time since two, no, 1995. Okay. And I, I have always been a small airplane guy, but on the track to do kind of what you do now, which is commercial aviation. I, I pursued that. Um, I'm curious 
I think things must be different from my perception from decades ago, but I want to ask a few questions about kind of flying timekeeping and time consideration in flight planning. Why is or is GMT like the concept of GMT or UTC important mm-hmm. in aviation? Because in, in the watch world, when people think of pilots watches, basically what you think of is something like a, a complicated chronograph like a, a Breitling with what amounts to an E6B reprinted on the bezel, which is a total eye chart. And then the probably the most iconic pilot's watch ever is something like the Rolex GMT Master, which were these were watches that were kind of, the lore says, were commissioned by Pan Am in the early jet age. Mm-hmm. Do Is GMT something that is a consideration in the cockpit, you know, when you're when you're traveling and going from time zone to time zone as you make your calls? It is because with an earth shaped like ours and it's different times of day all over it, you need a standard. And so it could have just as easily been some other time, but they picked the GMT, like you said, or uh, UTC of zero, whatever you want to call it. And it's just a way for all of us, no matter where you are, to say, here's a standard or a reference. And from that, this is what time you should be taking off or landing and when things should be happening. And so there's no question on your local time, as long as you know where you are and your difference from GMT, then you know when the operation is going to happen. But also sometimes you take off. Like I, I had a flight in August from New York to Western Africa. And so you're crossing many of those time zones. And so if you were trying to account for all that and just use whatever your local time was, that could get very complicated. So it's just a standard. Got it. Now, so in the old days, I'm thinking, you know, go back to like the late 50s. We're talking, you know, early jet age. There's literally somebody in the cockpit handling, you know, the radios. And back then it would be, instead of it being satellite based or anything, it would be actual like HF, you know, somebody, you know, uh, uh, working a wireless, very similar to what you would see in something like World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. Does, is the radio call dead, you know, for position calls when you're out in due regard way out over the ocean or does a cars handle all that for the listener? You know, this, the airplanes often, they have the capability and Vincent, correct me if I'm wrong. They basically, they have the ability of sending messages on their own, you know, via, via satellite to, you know, company and to, you know, air traffic control and stuff like that. Is that how that works these days? Mostly. But there are still parts of the world, that same trip to Africa, where we had to make position reports because the agency we were speaking to did not have or could not afford, or I don't know what, the technology to have some sort of updated or automated precision position reports. So we would still check in with them every so often. Hey, we are at this location, airspeed altitude. We expect the next position at this time at this airspeed and altitude. And it just allowed them to continue to plot us. So yeah, in some regards, uh, things haven't changed a whole lot. But for example, when I go back and forth to Hawaii, which I do on occasion, it's pretty easy. We check in with either San Francisco or someone else on, uh, on HF, and they'll do a quick check with us to make sure the communication is working. And then at that point, we don't need to talk to them anymore because they can just send us, in effect, text messages. And when you first coast out, let's say, coming off of California, you check in with them, you get a check of your system. Yep, it works. And then you just get text messages for the next four hours until you get close to Hawaii. And then the last one is, hey, now check in with Hawaii Control 
uh, on this frequency once your VHF is within range again. And you give them a call and they say, oh yeah, squawk this. And in a moment or two, they'll see you. And then they start giving you the normal instructions. So yeah, they're starting to experiment with that over the continental US as well. Not doing all the voice stuff anymore because it's just, it's somewhat burdensome when there's that many aircraft for everyone to wait their turn to talk when they could be doing more of the text. Interesting. I, this is as an aside, but I'd be curious to see how that would really work when you're, when your ear is attuned to listening for certain things, you know, versus monitoring a screen, you know, for yeah. an update. Yeah. Well, it- you, you get a ping in the cockpit, right? So you get this ping and it tells you, and of course we're paying attention and uh, <laughs> monitoring what's happening anyway. So nothing should be surprising to us other than, Oh, here's a light or here's a notification or whatever it is. So yeah, I, I think it would take a little time, but I, I think it'd be less work. So probably pilots would uh, welcome it. Interesting. Well, yours is definitely the more informed perspective. So that makes sense. All right. So my next question is this, you know, given what it is that you do for a living, you know, flying for a major commercial carrier and you're all over the world. I mean, you've alluded to, you know, Africa, Hawaii, all over the US and probably various other places. What sort of features do you think would make an ideal pilot's watch? Not just in the cockpit, but I mean, sort of, you know, jokingly, but I mean, you have to go to the bar on your layovers or to the right. pool or the beach. <laughs> yeah, I, I would I would say, yeah, I certainly don't just sit in my room and watch the TV. I try to get out and do various things. I would say something maybe that could also, uh, not also, but could update itself. So when you are in the airplane and you get off in Ghana, let's say Africa, and it says, oh, okay, I know where you are now. This is the local time. And so maybe it could update that, but also have, again, the reference uh, to UTC, which would be good. Um, Something that's easy to look at because we fly in different lighting conditions, but not going to destroy my night vision, which isn't as big a deal now in my airliner as it was in my F-18. And something that's comfortable, surely, right? Uh, And something that's easy to interface with. So yeah, something like that, I say. Absolutely. Well, and hopefully something diveable too. Do you have a do you have a dive certification? Do you ever do, do. stuff like that on? Yeah. yeah, that's why I had the Aqualand, and I found that at, when I first achieved that qualification, it was fun. I actually needed to do it in order to attend some SEAL training uh, exposure for midshipmen when I was at UCLA. I went and spent three weeks uh, here in Coronado, where I now live, uh, coincidentally playing around with the SEALs, mostly because I was, I don't want to say bullied into it, but we had a very strong personality in the class one year ahead of me. Still, He's still a friend. He ended up spending a career in the SEALs. And he said, Vincent, you got to go do this, you know, mini buds thing, blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, okay, whatever, you know. And I went and did it. And at the end of it, I thought, boy, those SEALs are amazing. Uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, at some point, like the intensity level is maybe a little too much. Uh, well, for those who want to do it, man, those guys are amazing. Uh, it was just something, you know, they start with a class of 130 and they graduate about 20. And I knew I would be in that group of 110 because if, really what they're looking for is almost everyone has the physical ability to do it. If you get accepted into the class, what they're looking to do is weed out the ones who don't have the mental ability. And wanting to be a pilot, that would have been me, I, you know. And even in those three weeks, I thought, why am I here? But I did I did need a dive certification for one of the weeks of, of some scuba training that we did. And in the meantime, uh, I then dove with my two brothers in Hawaii and other places. And I enjoyed it. But I, at a certain point, I realized 
it's fun to go down, but if I'm just looking at fish or whatever, that kind of got old, give me something to do. Let me go look at a wreck or let me spearfish or something else. And I live in a place where I could be doing more of it. And I just sort of like the watch thing that you, you know, talked about earlier of all the things that interest people and certainly diving interests a lot of people. For me, it's just not high up on the rung of, of my interest. And I'm not really sure why I enjoy it, but it's just not, uh, I would say the highest rung is fly fishing for me. And I just returned from a trip actually with, uh, with, with some friends and my other brother Kai, and we had, we had a great time. And so that's, that's what I really enjoy doing. Oh, outstanding. Do you mind if I ask, where did you go? We went to the Trinity river, West of Redding, California, and we chased the steelhead that are in the river. And every October through March, the conditions are right. You always wish for some rain. We didn't have any, but we still caught some fish and it's just, they live in beautiful places. And when you're with your brother and friends, you just have a great time always. And so we had a really good time just going up together, chasing fish for two days on the water, but then also cooking in the, uh, the room that we had there at night. And uh, of course, some refreshments and libations. And uh, so we, we had a great time. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, just uh, let me kind of deviate a little bit, but steelhead, are they living in that river? Is that the habitat? Or are they coming upriver to spawn? Well, so both. Uh, steelhead are basically rainbow trout that make their way to the ocean and come back to spawn. Unlike a salmon, which were also in the river, uh, the steelhead will do it more than once. So they can live up to, I think, 11 years roughly and attain up to 50 pounds, theoretically. Ours were all in the five to seven pound range, probably. But yeah, they they born in the river, make their way to the ocean, come back to spawn, go back, and then they make several round trips until they either get eaten or caught and kept which we let all ours go or whatever ends up happening to them but they, they go back and forth whereas the salmon does it once got it well and that was going to be the nature of the question you know is uh, uh if they're coming up one time depending on when you catch them and when the season is do you get to kind of you know pull them out and keep them or if it's is a, it like trout yeah. where you put them back if it's a hatchery fish, you're allowed to keep, I think, one or two. I forget. Uh, we, we never do. The, when you fish with a guide, that's their livelihood. And so generally speaking, they're not real keen on removing fish. And so we, we, we just ate steak instead. But I guess getting back to the point of your show, one nice thing about fly fishing is I don't generally wear a watch out there because I just let time stand still and just try to savor the moment and being on the water and the scenery and being with friends. And, uh, so that's, uh, it's actually somewhat, uh, paradoxical to that as far as you just kind of hope the day is endless and time doesn't matter. But of course it goes by very quickly because you're having fun. No, I can imagine. And I, one of these days I'm going to take up, uh, you know, the good gouge I got from you to go do the, uh, the river outside of mammoth, but, uh, that's for another day. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Um, in in the cockpit, you know, in the you know pre-flight planning and stuff like that, what sort of watches are you seeing on fellow pilots these days? I've seen everything from the newest smartwatches, uh, and I think there are more than one company now making those. I've seen some old school Timex type, you know, watches with the little buttons on the face, and generally those are on the older folks. Uh, some a lot of times I don't wear one, but sometimes I do. Between our uh, tablets that we use and the docking, parking, if you will, the gates, uh, they have oftentimes a countdown 
uh, time as well for you. So, hey, minus 30, you know, you're 30 minutes from pushing back. But our, our tablets have different systems that show you not only local time and GMT, but how close are you to when we're scheduled to push back? And because everything happens on that schedule at, at uh, 30 minutes prior, you should get your clearance at 20 minutes prior. You should have your fuel information and your pre pushback as it's called at 10 minutes prior. If you have not already, you should start your APU. And then at five minutes prior, you should get your last few bits of paperwork and everybody's on and seated. And then hopefully right on time, you uh, have everything, you shut the door, you do your checks and you push back and, hopefully get going where you're trying to go. So um, a watch is a good complement, but it's almost not necessarily critical to our operation because of all the other things that are happening, including in some cases, people coming to the cockpit or the flight deck, as they like to call it, and telling you, hey, here's your last weather paperwork or here's whatever else. And you would think they'd get away from paperwork, Matt, but they haven't really yet. We're still <laughs> still uh, killing a lot of trees, actually. So that was one of my jobs, you know, going through college, basically from the age of about 20 to, I guess, really, you know, my mid twenties, I worked air operations for, you know, a now defunct major carrier. It's been <laughs> subsumed like three times, but I was, I was a cactus guy at America West okay, and then FedEx. And yeah, I, a million times I was the guy preparing that paperwork, either the, the weight and balance or, you know, bringing stuff from, from dispatch, global ops and stuff like that. Do you, this is a super geeky question, but when you, when you push back, do you still, so at our company and the company I worked with before that, you'd have to make a, a radio call to the local operations to basically call your push time, taxi, wheels up and estimated wheels down. Do you guys have to do that anymore? Is that, or is that all through the, the computer? No, we don't have to do that anymore, except if it's needed for just local clearance so you don't push into a congested area. So in uh, Los Angeles, where I'm based, we have to have certain um, gates where we have a ramp control that we call, and there's other gates where we just call the ground control. But then there are other bases, uh, or I should say airports, I think it was, was it Tampa I was at recently? where, hey, you know, you don't have to call us, but if you could just let us know you're pushing back, it would be nice for us to know. And it, you know, this is what it says in the notes for the airport. So it just depends on where you are. And then most airports don't require any other real calls like that. They, they have your flight plan. They know what you're doing. But curiously, John Wayne Airport in Santa Ana in Orange County does require you to call your operations and tell them what you're squawking. And I think that's because if they, they are very noise sensitive airport when you take off right over Newport beach and Balboa, that's I where think, I worked. Uh, okay. There you go. So, you know, yep. right. So if, if they get a noise complaint because we didn't follow their crazy procedures of zooming up real quick and then kind of chopping the throttle to be as quiet as possible till you get to the coast, uh, then they get a call or they get a complaint and they have to look at the time and, and the squawk. And then, okay, that was, you know, whatever airline flight, such and such. So we'll talk to them and see if something happened. So, but now, generally speaking, once you call for pushback because you might need to just for the clearance, then everything after that is pretty scripted with the different ground control tower departure. And, you know, they, they'll work you in, uh, especially if you're in a smaller airport like Tampa, going to a bigger airport like Atlanta, then sometimes they'll even hold you on the ground. Hey, you're not cleared to take off until time 5-3 to 5-8 time now three, two. And so, you know, you've got about 20 or 30 minutes. And so you'll 
tell uh, all the folks in the back, hey, you know, because it's busy airport, we're going to be waiting over here. And then you also keep one engine uh, off while you're doing that. Oh, we've had a loss of internet connection. Jello, stand by while I execute the procedures in the signal reconnect checklist. Jello, we just had a little technical problem, but I think we're back online. And to kind of uh, summarize where you were just talking about the the need sometimes, where even if the watch isn't necessarily super important, timing in the cockpit and the the overall kind of airway system is extremely important, mm-hmm. even down to the, as you were saying with your Tampa to Atlanta example, you might not be allowed to launch because they know exactly where you need to be for flow to get to your gate when you land at Hartsfield. Correct. Yep. Yep. Well, I had hoped to hear something different. Like there's still this super romantic attachment to, <laughs> to the expensive fancy watches, but I expect there's probably a lot of, of Apple watch and, and Garmin in cockpits these days. Well, I'll say this, Matt, I, I don't know if you've recently thought about buying a car, but if you've ever been through this, you'll, you should identify this right away, right? You think about, okay, I'm going to go buy whatever it is. Let's just say, uh, I don't know, something, Porsche Cayenne. And what happens when you're driving around all of a sudden, all of a sudden you see Porsche Cayennes everywhere on the road, right? Because that's like, oh, there's that color or that color. Oh, I like those wheels. And so they have a name for this. I just don't remember what it is. I bet you if I were one of your more uh, enthusiastic listeners, I would probably recognize, right, and look and even ask every pilot I flew with, oh, what is that? That's pretty cool. How long have you had that? Well, who'd you get it from? And for me, I guess I just, it's again, as we've uh, discussed, and I feel a little sheepish admitting it because the show I'm on, uh, but it's just, to me, it's just another tool, right? Uh, and so I don't ask him what shoes he's wearing. I don't ask him, uh, I know what kind of tablet he has because it's from the company. So I, I imagine there are still many people out there that have very fascinating timepieces with probably really great stories. And uh, it's just not something that I am tuned into uh, just based on my level of interest in them. Well, you're not tuned into it yet. I mean, that's still kind of my mission is to, uh-huh. to slowly incept you so that over time we'll, we'll do a follow-up episode in like a year and let's see if okay. the answer changes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we talk about watches on this show, but we also talk a lot about uh, kind of the, the adult beverage thing, the Bon Vivant stuff, you know, travel and mm-hmm. food and, and booze and stuff like that. So let me ask you, um, what is a go-to beer for you at home in Coronado? I mean, you're in San Diego, which is an absolute mecca for good beer. Oh, yeah. And I live on Coronado where we have the Coronado Brewing Company. So they make very good uh, beer right here on island. I like, I've been on an IPA kick for a few years now. So uh, Space Dust, Elysian, or however you pronounce it, um, 805 is, I think, a local. Uh, of course, Coronado Brewing's got a couple uh, IPAs as well. So I just, if I'm going to drink a beer, I just want something that's going to have some flavor and some punch. Uh, now that being said, this past weekend on our trip, one of the guys bought a 12 pack of Paps Blue Ribbon. And I thought for heaven's sakes, dude, what are you doing? But it was cold enough. And, and when you're thirsty enough, it tasted pretty darn good, but yeah, I'll reach for an IPA and I like the ones you can see through a little better than the hazy ones. And that's, that's a go-to for me. Yeah, absolutely. Pabst Blue Ribbon is actually pretty popular again. I think um, yeah. you know the hipsters sort of ironically resurrected it, and <laughs> yeah, you know right. it 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 sees a lot of action all over the place. So, 
yeah. people yeah. people like that one. All right, I've got a hypothetical for you. Assuming you have, let's say, a 24-hour plus layover. So maybe even sometimes you get like two full days of crew rest on a long trip someplace. Sometimes. Usually the longest would be like a 30-hour, 36-hour. Um, if you fly in, let's say, and land first thing in the morning, and so maybe you flew all night, they know they need to let you sleep that whole day. Well, you might not leave again till let's say, the second day that night to fly back overnight. So yeah, you might get about 36-ish okay. sometimes. So in that hypothetical, let's say they send you on a trip someplace awesome like Costa Rica or Hawaii or, or Australia, what kind of stuff does Vincent like to do on the layovers? And do you have like a go-to cocktail or something that you ask for when you hit the bar or the restaurant or what have you? I wish I did have a go-to cocktail because I really need to figure this out. I First off, I don't drink. Uh, another thing I don't do besides, uh, like a lot of pilots do, besides you know being a watch aficionado is I don't play golf and I don't drink coffee. So I don't know how they ever let me into this industry. So I don't drink like a rum and Coke or anything with caffeine because I find the alcohol wears off before the caffeine does. So for a while, I was doing gin and tonic. And then one night I woke up in the... Uh, Quinine, 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 I forget, however you pronounce quinine. the stuff that makes, yeah, tonic, a tonic. I was spinning and it wasn't the alcohol. It was, I think the quinine. And so I had to swear off of that. So then I thought, well, maybe I'll just try to do a vodka and tonic. And I found that was kind of boring. So I don't really have a go-to liquor per se. Um, a beer is an easy one, but the older I get, the harder it is to work off those calories. Um, so I guess it just depends if the captain is, uh, you know, right now I'm still a first officer, although I've been selected for captain. So I'm hopefully going to make my way to the other seat pretty soon. Uh, but when they take you out because they get paid more, they usually buy. So whatever he's ordering, I generally just try to do that unless I think it's going to mess me up. I did have one night when I was much younger where, uh, I thought Red Bull and vodka would be the way to go through the night. And uh, it's a miracle I didn't die. I think my heart was fluttering the entire next day. Um, and we went snow skiing. So that was just a really all odd day. Um, but yeah, if we get in and, and we can have something that first night, generally I don't mess around with it the next day because obviously I'm flying an airplane full of, you know, 80,000 pounds of fuel and 220 people and I don't want to put them at risk. So if we do have a longer layover than that first day, I might, but uh, second day, I typically leave it alone. Gotcha. Yeah. And for future reference, Red Bull and vodka is definitely a cautionary tale waiting to happen. Oh man, we, we killed it. I mean, I can't remember how many I had. I somehow made it back to my room. Someone took pity on me, I think. And the next day I just was, it was weird. Yeah. My heart was just fluttering all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, the uh, adult beverages aside, it, Going back to that hypothetical, if you're someplace tropical, you know, where there's water and stuff like that, do you, how, what do you typically do to pass the time? Well, that is one of the reasons I have a podcast because I find it gives me things I can do that make a difference, uh, both to me and to the people who listen. And as long as I have my laptop with me and the internet, I can do all sorts of things. So I always joke to people that when you get to a layover, you can go to the bar, you can go to the gym, and you can turn on the TV. Uh, so you can only go to the bar for so long. Uh, I can only go to the gym for so long. And frankly, 
I don't mean to take this sideways, but when you turn on the TV these days, it's like, gosh, it's just, it's not that, it's not that good. And so I try not to turn on the TV. When I leave my room, I do a little uh, assessment. Uh, of course, I look everywhere and make sure I haven't left anything. Uh, but one of the things I do is, did I or did I not turn on the TV? And if I didn't, I count that as a victory. <laughs> um, now, if it's certain sports seasons, I might turn it on, look for the game. Uh, and the one show I like is Shark Tank, of all things. Um, so I do watch that. If I happen to turn it on and see that, I'll turn it to that. But Or, or, or muscle car shows. Um, but having a podcast where I can interact with listeners, I can work on something, I can work with my team. I find that is a wonderful thing. So I will either write or I will work on that. In some cases, I actually will record audio podcasts on the road. And otherwise, it's just a lot of the housekeeping that I do. And that, for me, is important because I am very much an achievement-oriented person whenever you take those different assessment tests. I am big time on getting things done, improving things, checking them off. And uh, so for me to be able to, oh, okay, I got this musing done like that one about the watch, or I've connected with this person like you, I might tell you, hey, I can have a 30-minute debrief when I'm sitting in uh, Lahui. Sure, let's do it. Um, so that for me is, it gives me something that I can achieve. And that's, that's a good thing for my bent. Well, that sounds like a, a good kind of segue back to your podcast, and we'll we'll start to wrap this up, Vincent. I I think you we've probably talked about this offline. You may not realize it, but your your podcast among a certain subset of people in the watch collecting community is enormously popular. So, I mean, from a very selfish standpoint, you know, having you on is kind of a feather in our cap because I know there's a few people who are going to be like, "Oh, that's awesome." Uh, but what yeah. is so you and I have talked about this, but for people who listen to your podcast, um, can you give us a preview? Because you've got some big changes coming up, right? In terms of what you're going to be doing to augment your process and, and the look and feel of the, the podcast is going to be different and, and augmented, right? Absolutely. So the first five years were audio only. We did have a YouTube, or we do have a YouTube channel. And it was the artwork that one of our team members comes up with and then just the little bouncing sound bar so you can see some sort of motion. And so just like, again, back to that Porsche Cayenne, after a few years, what did Porsche do? Well, let's change it because you can't let it get stale. And so after five years, I've decided, you know what, let's pivot to video. So we are in 2023 moving to a video format where it'll be a little bit like Joe Rogan where we'll have a little clip maybe of something compelling that the guest had said uh, to get a hook into people when they first push play. And then a very short intro of some compelling music and some cool flying scenes, and then straight into the interview. And Matt, I, I know for you as a listener, that'll come as a bit of a change because in the past it was very much like, you know, check, check. Hey, is this thing on? Like, Hey guys, I'm Vincent Aiello and I'm, I bought a microphone on Amazon and I'm trying to figure out garage band and I'm going to talk about flying. So if you like it, you know, listen, and it's, it's, it's funny and a little cringeworthy to go back and listen to my, some, some of my early episodes because I'm talking about everything and anything. And, Oh, my wife is doing this or my dad passed away and I'm going on this trip. And I think that built that helped build rapport with people that they learned that I'm just a normal sort of average guy who has, normal things happen. And I just happen to have these amazing experiences in the military, but now I, I have kids and kids come with different challenges and opportunities. And I have a wife and older parents when I've lost one of them. And 
I actually lost one of my brothers that I, I shared on the show and, and the outpouring of support from people who feel like they know me and, and appreciate the show and, and obviously, you know, weep when I weep and laugh when I laugh. Um, it was uh, it was amazing, the outpouring of support uh, that uh, we lost our middle brother. In fact, the last time I my other brother and I had seen him was on one of those steelhead trips in 2020. And so that's why it's been such an amazing opportunity to go back to that now and, uh, and think about him and celebrate his life. And so, um, it's, we're, we're moving to video and with that move, Matt comes the very simplified hello and welcome to the show, uh, here in the studio, I've got so-and-so with me and he did these things and let's talk about it. So I don't know if it's good or bad, I guess we'll see, but it will, it'll lose a little bit of that personal touch that it's had in the past. And I don't know, the jury's still out on how people will like that. And maybe what I'll need to do is just jump on once in a while and just connect with people, whether it's a live Zoom, excuse me, live YouTube, or just a just an extra bonus where I talk about whatever's going on and, and answer listener questions, et cetera. So we'll see. But yeah, we are big changes in 2023. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I saw the teaser. I think it looks cool. And, you know, personally, I think that the, the YouTube element is important, you know, as a, as a thing for growth, whether, whether you like YouTube as an entity or not is beside the point, but, uh, I'm excited to see how it goes. And I've, you know, just as with the, at the risk of, you know, kind of fangirling here, um, the, the stuff that I've really liked about your podcast is, as you say, you know, I got some really good advice on podcasting. Um, and one of the things that was mentioned was, you know, be, be as authentic as possible, you know, be kind of your, your own self be, you know, accessible and, you know, to the extent that it's possible, right. Um, you know, to try to give something, I think that person said, yeah. you know, what was the, the adage, you know, give, give, ask or give, give, right. give, ask. So, you know, um, I'm burying the lead here, but you were the person who told me all that stuff, Vincent, you're, you know, one of my, my like podcast gurus behind the scenes kind of, you know, telling me, Hey, do get this, buy this, look into this, try this. So it, we've been very appreciative, both Greg and I, um, you know, in terms of the advice that you've given us, certainly you've been super successful and it's, it's cool to see where you're going with it. And yeah, that's, that's really about it. I do have one final question though, before you go. And okay. I wanted to find out what, what is in, from your perspective as a naval aviator, you know, a, a top gun bro. What's the best naval aviation movie? Is it Top Gun or is it Final Final Countdown? Well, I think I'll have to say Top Gun Maverick because it is very realistic. Obviously, the actors were in the back seats. The story was very well crafted. Yeah, there's a few things that people have issue with, um, but they really poured their heart and soul into it, including a friend of mine, uh, Ferg, Brian Ferguson, who was on the show before and then was tapped to be one of the many advisors to that movie and then came back to the show to talk about the process. And they really did. I mean, they had to make it entertaining and it is, but they tried really hard to make it as realistic as possible. So the final countdown is great. There's some good flying scenes on there. The first Top Gun, you know, we like to poke fun at this volleyball scenes and whatever else. Uh, this one, of course, you got the beach football scene, but that's, you know, you had to be true to the original. So I, I would say Top Gun Maverick. You know what? I, I think that's a credible answer. I mean, I'm always going to have a soft spot for final. So final countdown was the, the movie that put naval aviation on the map for me, really. I mean, I saw midway as mm -hmm. a little kid, you know, the original version, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, final countdown. Awesome. Every aircraft was a cag bird. 
Um, that's right. Yeah. I mean, everything was like fully painted and clean and yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, Vincent, I appreciate the, uh, the time. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you being patient with our, our technical glitch there, dropping you in the middle. I'll make sure we edit that stuff, but hopefully it won't be too bad in the post-production. I don't have a Harry, so I'll be cutting and pasting and all that stuff. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, you got to do your time. You know, the, the advice I gave you before, right. Was all the lessons that I had learned along the way. And I like to serve. I mean, that's one of my love languages is acts of service. And so for me to help you hopefully avoid some of those pitfalls and just have the best chance to get your podcast going was something that just made my heart happy. So I was glad to do it and I'm glad to be a guest. And to your listeners, if I may, I I don't feel like an apology necessarily is necessary, but I don't feel like we talked a lot about both time or alcohol on the show. So I hope they enjoyed our ramblings on all other things. Um, but I think it's great that we have a world where we have the internet and podcasts where we can serve really any niche that people find interesting. And so I, I think what you have is interesting and I was glad to be a part of it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks Jello. I appreciate it. And I will leave you with this on your next tropical trip. Try a Mai Tai. That might become uh, something you can work into the rotation. <laughs> Will do. Vincent, take care. It's good to see you. All right, Matt. Thank you. You too. All right. And we're back. Greg, what did you think of that? That was a pretty, uh, pretty interesting conversation. Don't you agree? You know, yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, Jello's been really cool to get to know in a, in a deeper way. I know you've been close with him, you know, known him for some time and, and he's been kind enough to, to share, you know, conversations with both of us now. And then of course, you know, getting to, to know his podcast in greater detail and his story. And he's just a, a treasure trove of kind of really cool information and just a, a really cool guy. Yeah. I mean, I think if I have one thing to say about that conversation, like I said, he's um, the, the mantra for, you know, these uh, organizations where they do, you know, high level training. So Top Gun and, you know, Air Force, like uh, a weapon school and things like that is they, they want their instructors to be credible, approachable, humble. That's clearly who this guy is almost, almost kind of humble to a fault. That's, I would love to have more time to sit down. Maybe this is a, you know, a, an entree to another episode with Jello where we can talk, maybe just open the box on his fly fishing or, you know, sit him down with somebody from IWC or Bremont or something like that. We were this close and the listeners can't see I'm holding up my thumb and four fingers. We were very, very close to having, I think, Bremont military have a connection with, uh, with Jello's podcast. And that's kind of, you know, was put on hold when he had some personnel changes, but yeah, I think he's just a watch guy waiting. Doesn't know it yet. We'll see. Yeah, you know, I think you and I mentioned this too. Just the the last couple of series of um, of episodes have been really neat and sort of uh, a line of, of of different stuff, you know, that we haven't done previous to that, at least in, in sort of um, theme. But you know, we had Surge on Explorer, and of course, there's sort of a you know historical, some military inspiration, you know, look on you know, on stuff and watches. And then, of course, um, you know, the most recent episode was all about the Millspec collection from uh, Alsol. And, um, and then you kind of carry this through, of course, with, you know, Jello's experiences. I thought there was a really neat, you know, set of three that were kind of came, came together organically, really, and, and show off the, you know, the things that are around, you know, the hobby that we do love. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, to a certain extent, right, the, the enthusiasm isn't just about the watches, but it's about all the different sort of tangential areas of life and human endeavor 
that are touched by watches and all three of those things. Yeah. Those all have some kind of like military and, and history. And I, I hadn't thought of this. We hadn't planned this, but by the time this episode comes out, it'll just be a few weeks before uh, veterans day here in the United States. And like you said, that's a kind of a cool fortuitous tie in with Bausel. Those are some awesome watches and that was a great episode too. So good observation. Yeah, fun. Love it. I mean, hopefully we get a chance to get Jello back on again soon. Yep. Yep. Well, Hey, speaking of kind of military watches, just to, to have some of our own watch talk, did you have, I know I'm kind of surprising you here and I know this is not a brand that's as close to your heart as it is to mine, but did you happen to see the stuff that dropped in the past week or so from Bremont? Yeah, I did actually. And, um, I think there's going to be some, some interesting viewpoints on it, not only, you know, between you and I, but probably, you know, the, the hobby at large, I was surprised that it wasn't picked up on some of the usual, um, outlets that I might expect. And so I think you had to point me in the direction. I went to, of course, directly to the Vermont site and um, was able to, to take it all in. But um, I was surprised not to find a, the usual reporting uh, on this one, on these three that we're going to mention today. But yeah, no, they're, they're, they're really interesting. I think they're different from each other by all means, but there's obviously a common thread, which I think you wanted to touch on as well. Yeah. Well, I think the common thread for these is, you know, that they, they retain a lot of the brand sort of design DNA. These are all new models, right? So there's, um, the fury, the, is it, uh, did they pronounce it oddly? I think it's oddly or oddly. And the supernova, the supernova, I think is going to be positioned as kind of the halo piece in their collection. The other thing they all have in common is they are all going to be serially produced models instead of limited editions. And this will be the first series of serially produced models that feature that ENG one uh, movement that they debuted at the beginning of this year. So this is, you know, they're essentially um, taking, I don't know if, I don't know what the the technical term is, right. But some, some licensed intellectual property riffing on it and then building the result of that uh, largely in-house in Henley. So, you know, I, I know there was a lot of talk, you know, at the, again, at the beginning of the year about what percentage of the movement they're making or finishing or what have you. But the idea is this is another really big step toward having some uh, some watch manufacturing done at scale where it's, you know, it's not just small pieces, but small and larger pieces and the design and the cases and stuff like that being done, you know, under their roof in England uh, by English, you know, technicians and watchmakers and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. I personally think the Fury is the winner in the three. I mean, the Supernova is... I just have to see it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm my first instinct was like a lot of people. It's like, okay, well that looks familiar, but their, their architecture on the cases and the way they did the dial is so different from anything else that I think I, I suspect in hand that watch is going to look and feel a lot different, you know, to let's face it. It's, I, it looks like a Royal Oak sort of, I mean, it does, but it doesn't, but it kind of does, but maybe it doesn't. Um, I hope it, it's not too much like that, but, um, you know, it, it is what it is. It, a lot of different companies have something like it. And I think, you know, they're going to try to maybe carve out some people who might be, you know, either pining away for something like that. And, you know, at, at nine grand, that's a lot, but it's a lot less than even some of the lower end, uh, you know, alternatives to something like a Royal Oak. 
you know, you could get a Royal Oak secondhand in this country, you know, maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago for about 14. That's, I mean, those days are so long gone. This might be a fun alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Or even to your point, like there, it is just still another, you know, price point down from like, for instance, you know, Azure Perigo, you know, Laureato. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if, if you really want to get down to brass tacks and I don't think that something like a Laureato isn't also ran, I'm making air quotes here. I mean, I think that's its own thing or a Chopard, the Alpine Eagle. I think that's very much its own thing, probably even more than the Laureato. Um, those are not orders of magnitude, but I mean, they're significantly more expensive than this Bremont. And this Bremont is, I think it's going to be sufficiently different in hand that, you know, people will like it. So we'll see, but I don't think there's any controversy surrounding the other models, especially the Fury. I mean, the Fury to me seems like that's an absolute freaking home run in terms of just aesthetics and the value add, you know, and all that. And it's, uh, that seems to me like what I would be in the market for. How about you? Yeah, no, I think I really like that one. I think it's, you know, taking a, a, a Vermont and sort of updated look and feel on, you know, what you might expect from a pilot's watch. Um, so just not to be, able, you know, to do something that is, you know, a unique or look at, you know, a tried and true, um, you know, type of watch, I think is great. I love that. I appreciate it, which is what Vermont loves to do and they're good at it. Um, you know, I think going back to the, the Supernova, I think, I think it's, it's really handsome. Um, if anything, you know, the bracelet actually, to me, really harkens the vibes that you described earlier, you know, potentially Royal Oak vibes. But, uh, you know, outside of that, I mean, everybody's making an integrated stainless steel sports watch right now. So why should Vermont not? I mean, if, if somebody, if, if that's what people are looking for, why not offer it to them? It's, it's handsome. Um, and, uh, and we'll see where that goes. You know, I think the fully polished case on the Fury might be a little bit too flashy, kind of a little blingy for me, but it's, you know, it's well done. It's really, a really good looking watch. Yeah, I'm curious if it the it would garner the supernova that is if it would garner kind of the same response if it was produced not with that bracelet which is admittedly I mean that's pretty reminiscent right of a of another famous design but let's just say it came out with like a really cool integrated rubber you know on a deployment or even a you know a decent tang you know a pin buckle I don't think people would care at all it would be a lot less you know uh, of a comparison. And then suddenly the watch, because the dial doesn't look anything like, you know, anything else. I really like the panorama date. I think that's cool. I, I think you'd be sacrificing something in terms of the panorama date because this movement can do that, you know, well, obviously it can, um, but it's, it's almost like a feature delete on the fury because the, the fury has a, a more conventional date. You know, obviously you pay more for that, that panorama date or, you know, big date, whatever they want to call it. Um, and to me, that's a really cool feature. I, w- I would love to see that spread across, but you know, I could I could understand why they saved it for I, what I imagine they think of as their halo piece right now. Yeah, and you know, I mean, think, I think all three of them have really you know well done, well executed um, power reserves. I quite frankly like it. I like it. You know, maybe so do I. It's unnecessary on an automatic watch. I still think it's a nice complication and it's you know an attractive feature when it's done well. And these are all done really well. Yeah, no, I think it's cool. It's um, it, it's like an attractive sort of, I don't know, it's just something for your eye to, to be drawn into. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we probably talked about this when we talked about the um, the Longitude, the LE that first uh, launched, you know, this this movement. And so this is probably obviously the, 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 the sort of, um, you know, evolution 
you know, of, of that, you know, and it, it's nice, it's interesting to see it in new models, you know, and I'm sure we'll be seeing it, you know, moving forward and, and even more. Yeah, if they can put this, I don't know how they would redesign, you know, something like one of their core pieces, like a Martin Baker two or a Supermarine, you know, around this movement, because the movement can do so much more. It's almost like you'd have to really dumb it down to put it into one of the, you know, the currently existing core models. So I guess I can understand why they, they went in the direction of, you know, three completely new things. So I guess that's cool. But anyway, that's Vermont right now. That's, it just felt like it would be weird not to say anything about that, given, you know, that uh, we've had a, a couple, as you say, sort of military inspired things. And obviously, you know, I'm a Vermont fanboy, so I wouldn't want to just let that go by the wayside. Yeah, no, it was a great tie-in too. And uh, like I said, I was, I was actually quite surprised that there wasn't the coverage on these that you see in the, the usual the usual places. So um, hopefully folks get a chance to check it out. Totally. Well, hey man, you know, we are probably pushing on, uh, I would say probably a good hour plus right now. Why don't we go ahead and start wrapping this up? Do you have any final notes? Yeah, I have two. Um, I actually recently just uh, was invited to um, participate in, and uh, serve on um, a new foundation board, which is really cool. And so um, this is being spearheaded by um, uh, one of our alums who we talk about often, a good friend of ours, Jason, um, over at Mission 1530. So he's got a, a foundation now that, that he's invited a few people to, to serve along. It's called the Tequila That Cares Foundation. And the, um, the overarching aim of this foundation is to raise funds and awareness um, and ultimately provide support to um, the communities that, that that produce agave spirits, you know, obviously tequila, but others, and um, uh, offer opportunities and, and support to the people who are working, you know, really quite literally, you know, on the ground. Um, so we're not talking about, you know, brand owners, we're talking about like hemidors and people who are working in, you know, the facility, whether they're, you know, harvesting agave or, you know, uh, working, you know, you know, in distillation. And so creating pathways and opportunities for them, their family, their next generation to pursue, you know, higher education or, um, you know, support community needs. Um, oftentimes these folks are sort of the, you know, the, the, the least compensated, you know, in that entire ecosystem. And so um, this foundation is going to try and step up and, and fill in the gaps for people like that and, um, and raise awareness doing it. So it's really exciting. Um, Jason's a great guy, really cares deeply about, um, you know, the, that, that community and, and sort of, you know, everything that maybe doesn't get highlighted when you see a big glossy presser or, you know, when you find a new bottle or, you know, from a, a, a on the shelf. Um, but in some ways it's, uh, that much more meaningful probably. So keep an eye out for that. I'm sure there'll be a lot more information. It's, it's really just becoming formalized at the, at the moment. It's recognized 501c3. And I believe the first project is going to be, uh, raising funds and then hopefully, um, uh, putting it toward a scholarship for, um, like I said, this next generation, the young, the children of these, uh, hemidors and other folks who are working um, in the community to, uh, um, get scholarship to University of Guadalajara. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's very cool. And I'm I'm aware and recall very uh, vividly, fondly, whatever, but Jason's commitment to that whole environment and that culture. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that you're on that board. Yeah, no, I'll share more about it as it comes available. But um, 
you know, there's, and there's actually a lot more that goes into it, but it's going to be really cool. So keep an eye on that. And then just a, a recommendation. We're watching uh, The Watcher on Netflix. This is very like Halloween, October spooky season, sort of thriller-ish. Have you seen it? I haven't actually. I don't think I've even heard of that yet. It's pretty good. I think depending on your algorithm, I think some people said they were sort of getting spammed with it, you know, in terms of Netflix recommendations, but um, it's really good. It's it's sort of this thriller. I need to, I don't need to go into it too much about a house, you know. You can make, you know haunted house if you want to go that far. But it's, it's about a house and a family that moves into it. They move from the city out into the suburbs out, out of New York. And actually, I didn't realize this, but it's based I think on maybe some sort of real life kind of recounts of a situation. Um, I want to say in Westfield, New Jersey. So I actually think that it's it's rooted in in something that actually happened, which is even more interesting. But yeah, perfectly perfectly spooky season approved. Oh, right on. Well, my final recommendation is kind of 180 degrees away from that. So this is kind of, uh, I guess, maybe in the spirit of The Resplorer. But I've got another film. I used to, I really enjoyed this film when I was a kid, and I didn't know enough about the world or, or history to understand what it was that I was watching at the time. But in uh, in the early 1980s, in fact, I think it was 1980, it was a film released um the title is The Dogs of War. So this is a, a film adaptation of a book by Frederick Forsyth, very famous. And The Dogs of War is a, it's basically a, a, a look at kind of the Bush Wars and mercenary operations in Africa. It's kind of post-colonial, but still sort of colonial, you know, actions in, uh, in equatorial kind of West Africa. And it's this notional country of Zangaro, Zangairo, however you want to pronounce that. Um, and the story basically features, at least the film adaptation, features Christopher Walken kind of as the main character. But what's interesting and kind of fun about the story, it's not a fun story. I mean, it's it's fairly dark. But there's quite a few people um, who will later become famous. So you know, this movie, as I said, it's Christopher Walken, it's Joe Beth Williams. Those are kind of the two biggies, but you know, it also is co-starring Tom Berenger. He's quite young, uh, Paul Freeman. So Paul Freeman plays this kind of former SAS, you know, hard man in this movie. Paul Freeman is the actor who, uh, goes on to be the bad guy in the first Indiana Jones movie. Remember Belloc, right? Um, an actor, a British actor named George Harris. George Harris is also in the first Indiana Jones, right? He is the, like the, the boat captain who smuggles them out of Egypt. Uh, you know, there's that whole scene with the, you know, Indiana Jones strapping himself to the the submarine. So he's, you know, he's kind of the, the ne'er-do-well pirate freighter captain. He goes on by the way, to become a fixture in Harry Potter. Dude, that guy holds up. Like he, he does not look much older <laughs> in like 2010, as he did in 1980, but um, he has a really great performance. There's um, Ed O'Neill is in it, right? This Love is, Ed O'Neill. Yeah, he's got a small part in it. So it's just one of these things where just before some of these people got big, you know, Ed O'Neill, Tom Berenger in particular. Um, but it's it's not what I would call like you know Saturday afternoon romp fun movie, but. Um, it's gritty. It's kind of that, you know, late cold war, dark, uh, kind of vibe. And it's, it's very much in keeping like what, with what I think, you know, the kind of things we see posted from our pal Serge, the Resplorer. but very good movie. 
you know, it's, um, you know, not high tech. Everything is, you know, really up close. Um, some long shots. It's kind of a kind of cool movie. I recommend it. Nice. No, that's great. I've seen this one pop across a few times and now, uh, now that I've got the formal, uh, approval on it, I'll, I'll be tuning in for sure. Yeah. Now, and it's very different ending from the book. So if you've read the book, this is different. Yeah. Well, Hey dude, it's been good talking to you. I realize, you know, it feels like we've only been talking for about 25 or 30 minutes, but of course, you know, we, uh, we started and finished and we had jello in between. There's always room for jello, but we are well over an hour now. So why don't we make this our last sip? Cheers. Salute. the episode don't forget to rate us on your podcast platform of choice it really does help you can find us on instagram at spirit of time podcast and contact us at spirit of time podcast at gmail.com as always please drink responsibly thanks again for listening we'll see you next time Thank you.